Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so excited to start this series because I've been thinking about this for several years. Actually, it was when we were sitting around imagining and discussing and drafting up these uh, documents for what would be the start of restoration, the bylaws, constitution, you know, governing documents, things that most people might think are really boring. I was thinking of it kind of as a future testament, like literally an inheritance. I would often think, what will people do and how will they read this 20 years from today? How will this impact how the church makes decisions? Will these be the things that we need to see in the future of the church and of today? Because I really believe that the church is supposed to outlast us. This church is supposed to outlast us, and not just us. Like, it's supposed to outlast our kids, and maybe even their kids. It's supposed to continue. And so that was the mentality that I had, is what would this mean for future generations and future people of Jesus? And I realized, uh, as I thought that, that, that might be a little weird, like most people don't think that way. In fact, that's the other reason I thought about this, is I don't think we think seriously about what the future future looks like. A lot of us not only don't think seriously about it, we really don't wanna talk about it. Like, what will happen when your life is over? What will it be like when your life's finished? Now. You might feel a little bit uncomfortable about this. I know I was the first time I talked about it or thought about it. I remember I was nine years old, and my dad took me downstairs. He's like, son, come here. And it was in the fall, I was, and I didn't really know what was happening. I just knew it was kind of dark down there, and it was a little scary when the lights were off and you had to go alone. I remember that part. And then he brought a ladder, and he goes up to these pipes in the corner of the house, and he's, he grabs this wrench, and he's like, now, son... If something were to happen to me, like if I were to die in the next year, this is what, and I'm like, Dad, what are you talking about? I was very articulate as a nine-year-old. I'm like, this is going to cause trauma in me, and I'm not going to be able to handle it. Like, you shouldn't do this. Uh, The nine-year-old version of that. And my dad, I remember, in his really patient moments, because he had some, he's like, son, I'm, I'm not dying today. I'm probably not dying tomorrow. You know, I, I probably won't die for a long time, but you need to know how to do this because I probably won't be around forever. And so I stayed there as he, you know, wrenched this pipe and told me about frozen pipes, and I, ha- I handled it. But, but it, was, it was a little traumatic. And so some people, you know, when they think about the subject of the end, they want to avoid the topic. But as other people have said before, the statistics are pretty staggering. Like, one out of every one people dies. (laughs) So we shouldn't avoid the topic. So I want you to just come with me for a minute, because this is probably the biggest reason that I think this is worth talking about. Because I've gotten to do this kind of pastor thing for over 15 years, and I've sat with a couple dozen families when, when they've had a loved one pass away. And I've either been in a room in a church or I've been in a room in a funeral home and we're talking about the, the funeral and the memorial service and what it's going to look like. And I just want to tell you the difference between a family and a person who's lived a life that I would like to call an outlaster. I realize it's a made-up word. It just means one who outlasts. But the difference between the person who left an outlasting legacy and the person who didn't. Because the person who leaves an outlasting, uh, the person who doesn't leave an outlasting legacy, there's this awkward silence in the room. 
especially when I maybe haven't known this person very well, and so I'm asking them to tell me a favorite memory or describe something. There's kind of a nervousness. They're looking at each other, and like, they might start telling me about their favorite sports team or how they love to grill. And when I ask for uh, a life lesson that we're taught or a favorite song or scripture, it's crickets. But I've sat in rooms where I start down my little spiel of what I hope the memorial service looks like, and there's still there's still crying, there's still sadness, but there's also an unmarked joy that's just unmistakable. And these people tell stories about how their, their, maybe it was their mother, how they loved to cook this certain meal. And they start to tell the story of the meal and you can actually smell the aroma in the room. And it's not just the aroma of the food, it's the, the smell of what that experience did for their aura, for their being, for their soul. And then they'll tell a story about a story that they, they told and a prayer that they prayed. And you can see that there wasn't just an inheritance that is going to be passed on. There was a legacy that was passed on. See, an inheritance is something that, you, that people get after you die, but a legacy is something you give before you die. And we have to know the difference because it really, truly makes all the difference in the world. And so that's where this series is coming from. And Jesus really calls us to, to live and to build something that will outlast us, that will go well beyond us. And so for the next five weeks, we're gonna talk about what it means to live a life that outlasts us. So if you have a Bible, open it to 2 Timothy 4. If you're not sure where 2 Timothy 4 is, there's a little table of contents in the front. Or you can check your device that has a Bible app, and you can click on the little chapter that says Timothy, 2 Timothy 4. And the person who wrote 2 Timothy 4 is someone I would call an outlaster. His name was Paul, or we think we're pretty confident his name was Paul. He's the writer of about half of the books of the New Testament, he is a spokesperson, he calls himself, for the people that are far from God. He's also a church planter who planted churches in the Middle East, who planted churches in Western Asia, who planted churches in Europe, including Greece, Italy, and most likely Spain. He contributed to the lives and multiplied himself in the lives of over 20 people who went on to contribute to God's kingdom that are listed in his letters, over 20. And... Timothy was likely one of the closest people to him. Of those 20, he calls Timothy a son, like a spiritual son to him. And he is passing on wisdom. But we see in this as well uh, something that he says that will help us as we want to become people who live as outlasters. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word and be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only for me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is likely the last letter that Paul wrote. We know it's the last letter that he wrote that made it into the Bible. Think about what Paul thought would happen when he passed on. What would happen to him when he passed on? What does it mean to have a crown of righteousness? What does it mean to be poured out like a drink offering? See, I think Paul had surrendered his life to Jesus long before this. He was this disciplined and determined religious protege. He was, he was trained by the best prof, uh, priests, um, religious scholars, and he was, he was persecuting these people who were following this certain sect of Judaism called the, the Way, and it was these people who said that, that Jesus was the Messiah, and he rose from the dead, and he was alive, and he was determined to wipe this out because this wasn't sound doctrine. And so as he goes down the road, he is literally blinded by a light and has a vision of the risen Jesus who says... You will be my chosen instrument, and you will proclaim my message to the Gentiles, these people far from God, to kings, and you will suffer for my name. And I think that Paul had that vision, kept that vision, and lived every moment in the presence of Jesus. Every moment of his day, he knew that Jesus was with him, and it changed how he he lived his life. But ultimately, He knew what it would mean to fight the good fight. He knew what it would mean to finish the race, and he knew what it would mean to keep the faith. And he could see this crown of righteousness. He could see Jesus in his glory, in the heavens, and in the glory of God. And that absolutely colored everything he did. If you and I want to become outlasters, then I think we have to have a vision of the end. If you're a note taker, that's something you should write down. But we have to have a vision of the end if we're going to be an outlaster. I think Stephen Covey says it like this, begin with the end in mind. I just like mine better because I think the end in mind is Jesus. And it's him saying, well done. And here's your crown. I don't really know what that crown of righteousness exactly means. But I know that Paul knew that it wasn't based on his good works. That he could say, well done, I did everything I could. But he knew that it wasn't up to his determination and his works that would would have a life with Jesus in heaven. It was because of the grace 
the unmerited, extravagant grace of God and the sacrifice of the perfect life of Jesus that he was able to be in the place where he was in and have an unwavering determination. If you want to be an outlaster, you have to have that vision of the end. And you might wonder why you have to have that vision of the end, but I think if we don't have that vision of the end, guess what? We just start sliding to this place called seeking happiness today. I actually think it's a disorder. I, I, I named it yesterday called Today's Happiness Disorder, THD. You can start it with me. We'll tweet it or hashtag it or whatever. But think about it. You might disagree, but, um, but just let's... Think about it for a few minutes, okay? Prince passed away this week in case you were in a black hole or something, like the music artist from Eden Prairie. And one of the most copied posts on social media was um, one of the lyrics to his song that said, Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Yeah, if, if that's your vision of the end, to get through this thing called life, then I think you would try to just do things that you could to make yourself happy. I mean, Disney stories tell us in the end that they lived happily ever after, and so then they say, follow your heart, and then maybe you'll get there, maybe. I mean, even, even the Founding Fathers, when they state our Declaration of Independence from England, say we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, they, they say men, are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So this guy named Tim Elmore wrote a little book, uh, wrote a book just under two years ago called um, The 12 Huge Mistakes Parents Make and How to Avoid Them, <laughs> okay? And as I read this, I'm like, dude, it's THD. It's today's happiness disorder all the way. Um, so there's 12, but I, I kind of condensed them into three things that, that he says parents today do. Now, maybe you're a parent, and so this applies to you. It's a little challenge. Maybe you're a young adult, and you're like, my parents did that to me. And so we'll, we'll not blame them, but we're going to figure out what to do about it. So number one, they say that parents today um, remove too much. Parents today remove too much. He says, when good-intentioned parents remove too much of the pain and struggle and consequences for their kids, they're not helping them. They're actually hindering them to become healthy adults. And he says that research shows that these adolescents and young adults are people who don't know how to endure suffering. They're people who, don't, who give up too easily, and they're people who are not prepared to take action for the future. He interviews college professors who say that, um, that these, these students can't fill out an application because they're afraid they're going to mess it up. They can't take a job interview because they, they're worried, too worried that they're not going to get the job. That's what we do when we remove too much, is we hinder that ability. Now, think about what we've lost in the last 20 years. High diving boards. You know, they are, they're over water. I mean, you, you could fall down the ladder, but high diving boards, those are good things. Slides that were tall, big swings. Like, and I'm not advocating that we should remove seatbelts from cars or make kids not wear bike helmets, okay? But there's some normal things, like maybe if you're a teacher, you could use a red pen and no one would yell at you. I'm just, maybe we could do that. Maybe the high board would be okay. And what we've removed is the blessing of failing. Because when you fail, you find out, guess what? It's okay. 
You're still alive. You can keep going and you can try again. Number two, he says that parents rescue too soon. It's kind of closely related to number one, but he says parents today, if they do let their child struggle with something, they certainly won't let them fail. So I made up a number, I could be wrong, but imagine if you were born before 1980 or 1985, right in that range, and you got in trouble at school and the school called home. Would your parents like attack and question the teacher or would they say something like, well, did you let them have it? Totally keep them after school. But to these parents, like, if you're a teacher, you don't want to call home because parents want to defend their child. They don't want them to fail. Or, you know, if, you had, uh, if, if your child calls home and says, I forgot my lunch and I don't have any lunch money in my account, you, maybe you're tempted to drive to school and rescue them. Or you could let the natural consequences of being hungry for one meal or have them, have them get really resourceful. Wow, I found amazing stories that come from that when, when you have kids that, that have to figure out how they're going to eat. And again, I'm not advocating that we have kids skip all these kinds of meals, but natural consequences are earned wisdom. And that's a good thing. He says that when we rescue too soon, we remove the consequences. And we don't ha- help students be able to get through that. We don't help students learn wisdom, build endurance. And we're hindering them. And third, he, he says that parents today reward too quick. I've probably said it before, like, we have a culture that, that celebrates participation. Like, everybody gets a trophy, even if you stink. And we probably can't change that, but... He says parents today often give kids what they should earn. And I'm speaking to myself too. So if you grew up with an allowance, did you have to do anything for it? Okay. Um, Sometimes that doesn't happen. But I'm wondering if the kids that are about, you know, the kids that got $125 shoes at nine, that got the latest cell phone at 13, got a new car at 16, and, and didn't have to do a thing to work for those things. If they're not the disillusioned and dissatisfied 25-year-olds of the day. And I'm certainly not judging them. But they would say that life isn't fair. They would say, they would wonder why they're not making the same amount of money as their parents who've worked 30 years to get to their level. And, and they have the extra burden of social media and the image projection that happens of how everyone's life is better than them. And Dave Ramsey, financial expert Dave Ramsey, would say they're going to go into debt to try and get it, to look it. And I don't think we can blame them. Because they just believe what their parents told them, that everything should come easy because we rewarded too quick. So, those are my contributing factors to today's happiness disorder, THD. And maybe I'm wrong, but I do think that there's something wrong when we pay so much attention to the fact that we are, if we're happy, and we pay a lot of attention to what we can do to make us happy. 
I even catch myself saying to my kids, like, oh, have fun today. I hope you have a great day. And I started to wonder, am I, are they actually hearing, be happy. Oh, I hope that you have a happy day because it's all about being happy. I'm starting to rethink just how I send my kids off. But God says, be holy as I'm holy. Not be happy because I'm holy. So you can seek today's happiness, but you will never, ever find it if happiness is the goal. You can try to pursue money, and you'll never have enough. You can try and pursue the best relationships, and you'll probably never be satisfied because there's something wrong with yourself. Happiness is never the goal. All of Scripture points to the fact that happiness is a result of a well-ordered life pleasing to God. So how are we going to do it? We have to have a vision of the end if we want to live a life that's holy and pleasing to God. But the other thing that we have to do that Paul sees, that I see that Paul says here is because he has a vision for the end, he is focused on helping others be ready for tomorrow. Not only do we have a picture of the end and a vision of the end, we've got to be ready for tomorrow. He says it like this in verses three and four. He says, a time will come when other people, when people will not put up with sound doctrine. To suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who just say what their itching ears want to hear. It's such a great phrase. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. To turn aside is to pause and pay attention to. Remember when Moses was walking along on the mountain to go to Mount Horeb and he sees the burning bush that does not burn? He turns aside to look at it and then God speaks to him. To turn aside is to pause and pay attention to. It's to consider something to the point where you agree with it and you start to follow it. And I think we've done that with happiness and I wonder how we've done that with our souls. So maybe I'd say it like this. Do you pay attention to what you pay attention to? I've been hanging out with some people who are like spiritual director people, faithful Christians. A lot of them have uh, seminary degrees. They, they know their, their scripture, but they're just very aware of the Holy Spirit in the present moment. And they are phenomenal people to be around. And they have helped me so much in the last three years. Pay attention to what I pay attention to. In other words, what's the state of your soul? Your thoughts, your emotions, your spirit, your body, appetites, your relationships, those around you, and and your choices. That is what your soul is made up of. And do you pay attention to it? Are you aware of it? See, when Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16 that he must suffer and be killed and on the third day raised to life, I believe Jesus was focused on being ready for tomorrow. But Peter, Peter says, oh no, Lord, you can't do that. That's not gonna make me happy today. That's not actually what he said, but in Matthew 16, 23, he says, Lord, no, this can't happen to you. And Jesus says to him, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. 
Do you pay attention to what you're paying attention to, Peter? It's not about what your definition of Savior is. It's about what God's definition of what Savior is. And so he says, if any of you want to be my follower, then you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it, but if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. You will save it. And what benefit do you gain if you get the whole world, but you lose your soul? For is anything more important than your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? See, if you want to become an outlaster, then you have to focus on being ready for tomorrow, not just being happy today. I think we need to focus less on our happiness today and more on our readiness for tomorrow. That's what Paul tells Timothy, I think, when he says, be ready for tomorrow. Be paying attention to, in verse 2 and verse 5. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. That is a focus. That is a pay attention to. And then he says, keep your head in all situations. When other people are turning aside, distracted by today's happiness, you keep your head in the situations. You endure hardship. You do the work of those who tell others about Jesus. You give away your duty so that they'll outlast you, so that your ministry will outlast you. Do as I have done, as I have followed Jesus, and I have helped walk you, Timothy. You go ahead and find others who can help others. And that's what he says we need to pay attention to. Not to be as concerned about tomorrow's or today's happiness, but on tomorrow's readiness. To prepare ourselves and others to see the gifts and the tools and the values that they have instilled by God in them to live a life of God through them. And it's amazing if you've ever had the chance to do it. So how do we do it? Beyond just what is important to have a picture of the end and to live and prepare ourselves and others for tomorrow, that's what we're going to spend the next four weeks on. We're going to look at what kind of faith we will pass on next week. And then we're going to look at who we will pass on our faith to. And then we're going to look at how we will pass on our faith. And then we're going to look at how much we will pass on of our faith. And again, this is not just for parents, it's for people. Because an inheritance is something you give when you die. But a legacy is something you give while you're alive. It's the thing that will last you far beyond any inheritance on earth. It will be the one that will last into eternity. And so, as you think about your life, um, maybe you've heard the story of these five missionaries that went to Ecuador and they, they had this huge desire. Um, they, some of them were called to stay in the church in America in, and some of them were called to do missions work in other, um, other countries throughout Scandinavia and into Europe. And, and these men, one of them named Jib Elliot said, no, we've got to go to the places that no one else is going and he heard of these, this, these people, these Indians in Ecuador that were so savage that that was literally what their name meant. And they had some successful attempts. They just didn't realize that the person 
that they had had the most contact with actually lied to the tribe about the intentions of these missionaries. So these five men who've worked, some of them for five years to get there, literally are ambushed and killed. And one of the men, Jim Elliott, his wife comes back to the village and starts living there and leading a life and talking to people in such a way that so much of the village became Jesus' people and followers and their lives outlasted them. And Jim said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What are you paying attention to in your life? And I'm speaking to myself too. What is the state of your soul? Are you seeking today's happiness? Or are you focused on being ready for tomorrow? And no matter if you have kids or not, there are people in your life who God has placed there for you to pass on what God has given you. If you love Jesus, if you see the vision of the end, if you love these songs, if you know how to live in the moment of the day to be present with Jesus, then how can you not pass it on? We should have a waiting list for people who want to want to serve with Restoration Kids or our students. We should have people that are running out their doors to just be a light to Jesus, for Jesus, to the people around them. Because today's happiness will not satisfy. And it starts with us considering the state of our soul. So we just take a moment and hear the Holy Spirit speak to you about the state of your soul. God, I pray that you would continue to speak to us right now. I thank you for the words from, from Paul to Timothy here that, that just frame up this series of what it means to live a life that outlasts. And I pray that you would give us a picture of the end that is bigger than any picture that we think so that we would focus on being ready for tomorrow and not just living for the happiness of today. God, God help us to pay attention to what we pay attention to. Talk to us about the state of our soul. That we may live with you and for you and for your glory. We love you. That's Jesus' invitation to you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you are, that you would remember who you are, that you were made to be an outlaster, someone who would live restored by Jesus to bring hope to the world, to live in a way that outlasts you and the lives that you are around you, to be in eternity together with Jesus, not by your own power, because you remember whose you are, the one who restores and redeems and gives his very life for your life. And if you're not sure what to do with that, or you're in a place where your soul is going crazy inside, please join us at the prayer cove. Please let someone pray for you or pray with you. Because God has come to give you peace and to share that with others. So go in the name of Jesus, living a life that outlasts you for his good and his glory. Amen. Have a great Sunday.